Greetings, listeners. I'm Ethan McCurdy, and I'm here with Carla Golden. We are top of the noggin, that is N-O-G-N, which stands for Neuroscience Outreach Group at NYU, and we're bringing you the latest and most exciting breakthroughs in neuroscience, with an emphasis on new studies, cutting-edge technology, and neuroscience and culture. Today, we're going to go over a paper published online this past February in Nature Neuroscience, titled Self-Type-Specific Drug-Inducible Protein Synthesis Inhibition Demonstrates That Memory Consolidation Requires Rapid Neuronal Translation. Be sure to stick around for when we bring on Prerana Shrestha, the first author of the study, for some Q&A later on in the show. When an animal comes into contact with something that threatens their safety, like a predator, fire, or say, clowns at the circus, they want to remember what led them to that threat in the first place so that they don't repeat that interaction. This is called an aversive memory. Stored in association with that threatening cue, so if the clowns at the circus scared the child the last time they went, they'll know to avoid circuses in the future. The amygdala, an almond-shaped brain region, is an integrative center for emotions in the brain, and consequently it's involved in both the processing and the storage of aversive memories. Specifically, the area that's involved is the lateral amygdala, lateral referring to the part further away from the midline of the brain. It is thought that in order to incorporate these aversive memories into long-term memories, new proteins in this region need to be made. The act of making new proteins is called protein translation. This is the process of going from genetic code into messenger RNA or mRNA, which is translated or turned into proteins. In order to know how essential the creation of new proteins is to the incorporation of long-term memories, scientists need to block it during the time that we think it is required and in the cells that we think require it. In other words, to know what role protein synthesis is playing, Researchers want to take it away and see what happens. However, to do that in a precise way is a pretty tall order that had not yet been met by the technology available. Prerana and her colleagues invented a new way to reduce protein translation that was more specific than previous techniques. They did this by exploiting EIF2-alpha. What you need to know about EIF2-alpha is that it's an initiation factor that enables active protein translation. However, when EIF2-alpha is phosphorylated, which means it has a phosphate group added to it, this actually prevents active protein synthesis by inhibiting another factor that brings a source of energy to the whole process. Prerana and her colleagues developed a way to induce the phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha and therefore shut down translation, meaning that far fewer proteins could be made. Another amazing aspect of this new tool is that the authors could induce this protein translation inhibition at specific time points and in specific cells. The effects of this induction cleared away after a few hours, allowing them to study the creation of new proteins specifically as it pertained to the formation of an aversive memory. The authors found that long-term aversive memories are particularly vulnerable to disruption of protein synthesis across neurons in the lateral amygdala, especially in the main excitatory neurons. That is, neurons that go on to excite other neurons in the first hour of exposure to the threat. Furthermore, the authors found that protein translation is regulated by phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha and plays an important role in determining both strength and permanence. So, how did they do this? Let's start with the tool the authors developed. First, they invented a way to block protein translation by engineering a kinase, which is a protein that adds a phosphate group to another protein, so that it would phosphorylate EIF2-alpha, which in turn shuts down protein translation. 
They first tested its ability to reduce protein translation in cells on a plate, or as it's commonly referred to in science, in vitro. They transfected the cells with engineered genes that would produce this modified kinase, delivered a drug that would activate this construct, and measured whether new proteins were produced. To quantify the impact of this method on protein translation, all new proteins were radiolabeled. They found that they were able to reduce translation by about 60%. Next, they wanted to see if they could reduce protein translation in the brain. They measured protein translation in two ways. The first way they measured it was by a method called BONCAT, that's B-O-N-C-A-T, where they labeled amino acids with a tag and slices of the brain that contained the amygdala, so that the proteins created with these amino acids would also contain a tag that the authors could identify as new proteins. Using this first method, they obtained evidence that their tool was functional. The second way was by a method called sunset, where the elongation step of protein synthesis, which is the step where proteins are built from amino acids, was measured. The benefit of using the second method was that they could do it in awake, behaving mice. Using sunset, they also found that protein translation was reduced, this time by about 50%. They confirmed this was due to the phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha and that there weren't off-target effects, such as other proteins getting phosphorylated. Previous studies have suggested that in order for a memory to endure in the amygdala, new proteins must be created. One process implicated in the formation of memories is a phenomenon called long-term potentiation, or LTP for short. Let's take a case involving two neurons. In LTP, the stimulation of the first neuron drives a large amount of activity in the second resulting in an increase in synaptic strength. Protein synthesis is thought to be integral for the process of LTP and by extension, the creation of memories. To determine whether protein translation is essential for this functional coupling, they measured LTP in the lateral amygdala after the chemical activation of their construct that partially inhibited translation. And as they hypothesized, inhibiting translation also inhibited both the formation and maintenance of LTP. The authors next wanted to see if inhibiting translation would also alter memory consolidation, which is the process by which recent memories are turned into long-term memories. First, they trained mice to associate a tone with a foot shock, a memory that usually lasts for days. The authors found that if they deliver the drug that starts the chain reaction that leads to the inhibition of protein translation right after training the mice to associate the tone with the shock, the mice still remember the association recently after learning it. However, they did not seem to be able to remember it as well as the controls did a day later. This result suggests that the mice were unable to turn the short-term memory into a long-term one, confirming that protein synthesis is important for memory consolidation. Next, to see whether this permanently impaired the memory of the mice, the authors retrained these same mice and, without delivering the drug, tested them a day later. This time, they did remember the association, so fortunately, their memory was not permanently affected. So far, Prerana and her colleagues have been studying the effects of reducing protein translation in all neurons of the lateral amygdala, but learned threat specifically elicits LTP in the principal excitatory neurons in the lateral amygdala that receive input from the thalamus and cortex. Therefore, they next tested whether these principal excitatory neurons need protein translation to retain aversive memories. 
This time, the authors delivered their kinase constructs specifically to these cells using genetics and checked to make sure that there was increased EIF2-alpha phosphorylation only in the cells when they delivered the drug. Again, when they delivered the drug right after treating them to associate a tone with a foot shock, their memory for this association was impaired 24 hours later. Importantly, the authors confirmed this was due to a decrease in the global expression of proteins in the lateral amygdala and not through changing levels of other stress-related proteins that would constitute off-target effects. Interestingly, when the authors increased protein translation overall using a separate genetic construct, they observed that the mice displayed a more robust response to an aversive condition, indicating that memory was actually enhanced. In addition, memory deficits in the mice that had phosphorylated EIF2-alpha were completely rescued by dephosphorylating both genetic copies of EIF2-alpha, again, pointing to the crucial role of protein synthesis in these behavioral outcomes. This finding both confirmed that the phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha was the cause of the reduction in long-term memory for the aversive association, and showed that the relationship between EIF2-alpha phosphorylation and the aversive memory was malleable. Unfortunately, the general increase in protein translation came with some unfortunate consequences. It led to a failure to stop responding to the tone, even when the tone was off. This suggests a failure in their ability to assess risk in non-threatening environments. Lastly, the authors asked whether a lost memory could be rescued by the reactivation of principal excitatory neurons in the lateral amygdala. To do this, they used designer receptors that are exclusively activated by designer drugs, that is DREDS, a technology that we have covered in the past. Using DREDS, the authors activated neurons in the lateral amygdala and found that while their activation led to an increase in protein translation, the mice displayed memory consolidation problems. When the authors activated these cells in the mice with constitutively active EIF2-alpha, the mice seemed to recover the lost memory, but also generally exhibited fear responses. This all suggests how protein translation must be finely tuned for the consolidation of an aversive memory. So what did you think of the paper, Carla? I thought it was really great. Um, it's exciting uh, that they made this technology. I think it's it's good for for the field, especially because it has such great spatial and temporal resolution, um, meaning that they could shut down translation-specific cells and at specific time points. And there's, there's a lot of ways in which general protein translation is theorized to play a role in brain functioning and also like in the dysfunction um, in, in disorders, uh, you know, a lot of times that's theorized to be rooted in um, dysfunctional protein translation. So I think this is going to be a really uh, useful technique in the future. Um, and I'm interested to hear how they're going to use it. I, um, I agree with your points 100%. And I think you, you make two salient highlights of the paper, one being just how, what a what a cool tool this is that they developed. Um, they 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 noted the paper you know there are ways to prevent protein translation but they're drugs and they often come with a number of side effects and here they kind of hone in on the biological machinery of the cell and are able to manipulate it in a very elegant and um, important way and, and like you say as well protein translation is implicated at a number of just you know for example dysfunctional disorders and yeah, just like you say, I think it'll be, it, this could have some widespread implications for how scientists can study this process.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other really interesting aspect of this is it it offers a, a perspective on the the long time argument of what is a memory. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I've I've had in outreach um, classes before students have said like you know it's okay where's the memory in the brain, um, and I think that's a question that is continually trying to to be answered um, by many neuroscientists, and um, I think they touch on it in both ways that I think people often um, attribute to memory, which is that it's uh, long-term potentiation or LTP, and also um, the protein translation uh, that is necessary to um, maintain the LTP. So I, I think it kind of shows that it's both. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just just riffing off your point, you know, I'm, you, when, if, you know, if we were having this discussion about LTP, and memory, usually the system that I'm, I'm, I'm used to reading about is the hippocampus. Um, great, you know, this is a great uh, cameo of the amygdala coming into play with emotional uh, memory as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all other kinds of ways that the amygdala is theorized to be involved in memory and actually like with cues um, and not even just emotional memories. Um, I think, you know, this idea that there's short-term memory in one brain region and long-term memory in another brain region um, or that memory itself exists in just one place is, is clearly wrong. <laughs> um, I think that there's different kinds of memories and those different kinds of memories get encoded uh, for the short-term and long-term in different brain regions and the brain regions that, um, that are thought to be involved in their function. So um, yeah, I think this, you're right, it contributes to that, to that conversation. Yeah. Great points, great points you make all around. So should we bring on our author? Yes, let's do it. Dr. Prerana Stresa is a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Eric Klon here at NYU. Prerana did her PhD work at Rockefeller University, characterizing molecularly distinct pyramidal cell types in the prefrontal cortex that moderate stress-induced depression-related behavior in the lab of Nathaniel Hines. She is now studying the role of translation and specific cell types in the amygdala for fear-related memory processes. Prerana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carla. Thank you so much for coming on. We're excited to talk with you about your paper. But one of the first things we always like to ask people is, what is your background as a scientist? Well, so I grew up in Nepal, in Kathmandu, which is the capital city. Um, and I grew up in a family of photographers. So none of, nobody oh. in my family is a scientist or remotely in you know any, anything related. So I was the first person in my family to take a flight to the United States uh, for my undergraduate. I came here on full scholarship because I could not you know, otherwise afford to come here. Um, so yeah, so initially I thought, you know, I was very interested in biology. So I thought the straightforward path would be to go to medical school. Um, it was only in my first year in the summer, you know, during the summer internship when I was in NYU Langone actually uh, interning in a clinic for pediatric hemangioma or plastic surgery, um, I realized I wanted to, you know, understand uh, the, you know, biology of cells, our body, you know, at a deeper level. So then I got opportunity to do, you know, summer internship at Harvard in the following year. And I started out, you know, looking at or studying um, cell biology. And then, you know, um, things just worked out and I, you know, got the opportunity to come to Rockefeller for my PhD. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have 
um, three siblings. Um, I'm a mother. I was six year old. Um, mm. So yeah, I spend my time, you know, between lab and home, juggling, you know, <laughs> multiple hats. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I if I may ask, uh, do you do you see yourself as? I, I sorry, two, two small questions. Uh, do you see yourself more as? a cell biologist or a neuroscientist? And the second question is just to circle back to the photography. Do you, do you also enjoy photography that doesn't run through the family? I think I'm more of a, you know, somebody who can, I, I think I have an eye for good photography and good art, but I didn't really inherit the skills of a photographer from my uh, father, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I did use to assist him, you know. So my actually looking or thinking back, the first experiment in my life was actually as a child helping my father in, in the dark room developing all these black and white, you know, photographs. Um, yeah, so um, cool. do the, you know, as to the question of whether I see myself as a cell biologist or a neuroscientist, you know, I, I think that's actually... Um, it can be overlapping, right, in a sense. Um, so I started out definitely as a molecular cellular biologist, and I still think of myself that way, but I have, you know, spent a lot of time studying memory and behavior. So I think I'm sort of somewhere, you know, in, in the middle ground between a molecular cellular biologist and a behavior scientist. What brought you to NYU to work in Eric's lab? So it's actually quite interesting. So um, the system, you know, that we describe in this in the Nietzsche Neuroscience paper, actually uh, we conceptualized the system back in 2005, 2006, when I was Whoa. doing my rotation in, you know, Nat Heinz's lab at Rockefeller. So we were really keen on, you know, building an inducible protein synthesis inhibitor because that was not available, you know, even then <laughs> until now, you know, we, we just recently developed it finally. Been waiting um, for you. <laughs> so, yeah, so we tried, you know, a couple of different approaches, including tetracycline inducible system, you know, uh, trying different kinds of protein synthesis modulators. And they didn't really, you know, they sort of uh, worked, but then not really that well. Um, and then I moved on to my, you know, my thesis project, uh, as you, you know, uh, noted before, it was on medial prefrontal cortex and depression. Uh, so uh, another graduate student in Nat's lab, Pinar Ayata, so she, uh, you know, continued the project also as a side project, you know, in addition to what she was working on mainly. And she added this NS3 protease uh, that comes from hepatitis C virus and, you know, Pretty much she developed, you know, uh, so many different constructs, tested it in vitro in uh, cultured cells. And then by the time um, she left the lab and I was about to start in Eric's lab, we had this mouse line ready. You know, it was just ready. Nothing had been done yet. So I came to Eric's lab with a really clear idea on what I was going to work on during my postdoc. And he was, you know, all for it. So, it, so interestingly, Eric and Nat had uh, met in um, in Japan, you know, during one of their trips, and had talked about this mouse line. So it just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it just came together. Um, yeah. So I think I I was extremely lucky to have a really clear path, even starting out during my postdoc. Wow, that sounds like kismet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so then how did you decide to target the initiation of protein translation by uh, EIF2-alpha? Yeah, so um, EIF2-alpha is a very interesting molecule. You know, it's one of the key proteins that's regulated during translation in all mammalian cells. It's, you know, evolutionarily well-conserved. And cells actually use phosphorylation of EIF2-alpha subunit as a way to block translation rapidly and very effectively. And there are multiple kinases that phosphorylate EIF2-alpha uh, endogenously, you know, so this leads to uh, an inhibition of the ternary complex, which is the very first rate-limiting step in translation initiation. So we figured that this is the most effective way of blocking all or most of general translation. So there are other ways, you know, we could target translation, you know, factors, but then this was the most effective and most efficient way. Um, and uh, in, you know, luckily we also um, you know, we found that there is a molecule known as uh, PKR, uh, which is again endogenously expressed, you know, to and uh, phosphorylates AF to alpha, but the, you know, it needs to be uh, induced by double stranded RNA, uh, which is what happens during virus infection. Uh, but luckily, we found a paper from um, Peter Vandenabeel's lab in Ghent University where they found that the caspase generated kinase domain fragment of PKR is constitutively active. So that meant that we could mm. use this fragment, which is small in size, so it can be integrated, you know, in addition to uh, four other elements we have in the mouse line. Um, so, um, yeah, so altogether, it just, you know, worked really well to block protein synthesis. And overall, I mean, it's it's beneficial that it's not like, I mean, as, as you've, you point out in the paper, it's it's not toxic like you would use for a, a, a drug to shut down pr a protein translation. And I, think, I don't know, like anisomycin comes to mind. That's correct. Yeah. So anisomycin has other side effects besides blocking protein synthesis, right? Uh, and there are other, uh, you know, drugs that can block uh, translation factors, but then they don't really discriminate between different cell types or even broad cell classes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right now, there's a lot of interest in the role of, you know, microglia and oligodendrocytes, right? Uh, besides interneurons and uh, excited neurons in memory consolidation and so on and persistence too. Um, but the only way, you know, uh, so far um, of targeting these different broad cell classes have been to either hemogenetically, optogenetically, um, you know, either activate them or inhibit them uh, or mm -hmm. silence them, right? But not really target the protein synthesis machinery, which we know is required for long-term memory consolidation, but is, you know, it's dispensable for working memory or short-term memories. So I think this can be another level of, you know, um, in a way I would say it's, it's a code for long-term stories of information that activity alone does not capture. Right. I was there's one thing I would just wanted to say. I mean, you, you do bring up this point. Uh, you mentioned the off-target side effects, but and, mm -hmm. um, there could potentially be you observe these behavioral changes uh, when you shut down um, trans the process of translation. But you mm -hmm. control for potentially biological side effects because your you know your drug can runs runs along. Uh, ER stress routes where you shut down the most of translation, but you point out in the paper that you have transcripts with upstream open reading frames. That's and correct. so you control for 
something like ATF4 just to make sure it wasn't, say, the upregulated translation of ATF4 that was leading to changes in behavior. Right. So there, I mean, that's something um, we call it a sort of a paradoxical gene-specific translation that occurs when you we block general translation with EIF to alpha phosphorylation. So it, you know, it became a readout for us in a way uh, to see an ATF4 increase because uh, mRNAs that have upstream open reading frame, they actually have increased translation uh, as opposed to most other transcripts in the cells. Um, now, you know, one issue with ATF4 is actually that it is a transcription factor itself uh, and it acts on, you know, crept regulated genes. So uh, we think that by, uh, you know, by uh, phosphorating AIF2 alpha or by focusing on this key step in translation, we not only inhibit general translation, but we also release, uh, you know, this translationally controlled transcription regulator hmm. into the cell, into the nucleus. So we have this, um, you know, double effect of uh, instant, um, you know, translation and transcription inhibition in cells. That's why the method is so effective in blocking memory consolidation. So, so now, now in the case of the lateral amygdala, mm -hmm. do you think it's the translation of specific proteins that are involved in LTP and thereby memory formation? I think so. Um, we don't know the identity of those molecules because even though our mouse line allows us to do, um, you know, a method known as translating ribosome affinity purification or trap sequencing. Uh, mm. We haven't done that yet with, you know, CAN-K2 alpha neurons, for example, in, uh, in LA. Uh, I do think that there are plasticity regulated or related proteins or PRPs uh, that are responsible for LTP or LTM, right? Um, but we would need to follow up, you know, more thoroughly using proteomic and genomic approaches in a cell type specific manner. Um, now, uh, there's a paper uh, from our group that, uh, you know, uh, came out in eLife this year where um, Line, you know, the, co the first author, so she um, basically did translation profiling of axons versus soma of uh, auditory cortex to uh, BLA projectors. And there she saw very different class of molecules regulated in axons versus in the soma, you know, uh, following fear conditioning. Mm. So it is possible that, you know, beyond just looking at cell type specific translation profile, we might need to look at uh, subcellular compartment, you know, or how translation of specific proteins there are regulated in say dendrites versus soma versus axons. Yeah, right, even increase the spatial specificity. Right. Um, and so onto the regulation of, um, of, of this technique, uh, do you think if you titrated the drug, there'd be dosage effects or is it kind of like a, an all or nothing? So we, um, so we titrated the drug dose, you know, uh, for in vitro uh, cultured cells, but then we didn't really uh, change the concentration. Once it worked, we didn't really increase the dose as much because the IC50, you know, the inhibitory constant for the drug is really low at one nanomolar. Uh, so we didn't want to give the animals, you know, too much of the drug. Uh, but actually, it's a very interesting point, you know. I mean, we definitely don't want to cross the threshold of toxicity, right? So right. we know that right. this uh, IPKR kinase domain is generated by caspases. 
as a way to, you know, lead to apoptosis, which we don't want in the cells, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it's curious, right? So when we uh, infuse the drug one hour post training, there was no effect on memory consolidation the following day. So, you know, something, uh, you know, um, that I can imagine happening is, do we need to block protein synthesis more than 50%, you know, that we're achieving with this technique at the mm -hmm. one hour window to really affect memory consolidation, right? So that we don't know. Yeah, and if it's um, specific proteins that I guess would be sensitive to it and would be part of those 50% that were reduced in expression, um, right. versus if you like start to include more, right, then it would kind of, yeah, be even more proteins that you're regulating. Expression of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for the uh, finding about um, the, that inhibiting protein synthesis also uh, just kind of uh, reduce anxiety generally. Um, what do you what do you think the relationship between that is and and um, the aversive memory? Yeah, so I think that that's actually very interesting. It was you know supposed to be a control experiment, but we found that blocking <laughs> protein synthesis in CAMK2 alpha neurons in LA actually decreased anxiety like behavior in elevated plus maze test. Right, so mm -hmm. I don't think it's a confound because you know that uh, in the elevated plus maze, the animals are venturing out into the open hour more, more than usual compared to the controls, right? Versus mm -hmm. in the, um, versus in the, um, in the conditioned, you know, uh, sorry, in the, um, in the memory, in the LTM test, we are measuring freezing response, right? right. Um, so the, yeah, so I don't think increased mobility or increased activity would add a confound here in the LTM test for memory. Mm. But I think it's something interesting to explore separately. I think these are separate behavioral effects of decreasing protein synthesis in amygdala. So, you know, fear memory or threat memory versus um, anxiety in the elevated plasmas, you know. And uh, so this kind of anxiety behavior might require de novo synthesis of new proteins. Uh, and nobody has really right. looked at, you know, uh, whether we need uh, de novo translation, you know, for anxiety-like behavior. We think that this is something generalized and baseline, right? It's there all the time. But of right. course, the animals are in the, right, but the animals are in the elevated plus maze, right? So they're in a new environment that's anxiogenic. So it's possible that, you know, the, the way the animals are responding to this uh, anxiogenic environment is by synthesizing new proteins that are relevant and important for this kind of behavior. You, you had used the, um, you've, you've used this model where you're looking at the, um, the formation of long-term aversive memories, but could, do you, do you also feel that your work is going to be applicable for say people who are studying neurodegenerative disorders? Uh, sure. Another protein dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so EF to alpha phosphorylation is actually implicated in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, um, including Alzheimer's, you know, prion diseases. Um, so yeah, so this could be a way to uh, actually, you know, if we can do long-term um, phosphorylation of EIF to alpha by, you know, let's say a, a chronic 
uh, dosing of the drug, we could maybe uh, mimic, not rescue, but mimic, you know, some of these uh, mouse models for neurodegeneration. Another question. Now, this is this is zooming out a, a bit, but we know that several of our listeners are in the early stages of their careers. When you were when you were beginning your postdoc or beginning mm-hmm. these experiments, is there something that you know now that you wish you had known then when you were starting out? Um. So I think I mean the good and the bad side of you know part of doing a long PhD. So I had a really long PhD at Rockefeller. So I had learned to be independent uh, and self-motivated. So I think those are extremely crucial features, you know, uh, starting out as a postdoc. Um, But something I wish I knew (laughs) when I started my postdoc was how long it was still going to take, even though I had a mouse line, you know, already to begin my work, you know, characterizing the system. I did not realize it was going to take years before you know we were ready to submit the manuscript it just you know (laughs) we had to test various drugs we had three different mouse lines you know we had to try crossing the different creed driver lines it was just a lot and we were trying to i think be a bit uh you know a little too ambitious in the beginning because i thought we could even do translation profiling and add that you know data in the same paper Uh, but it just was too much work was taking too long and realize for the, the for the you know main point of the paper we didn't really need that, so I think it's it's good to take a step back and think about you know what your paper or what your work is going to be about you know and focus mm-hmm. and like uh, have it piecemeal you know focus on one story and then uh, a lot of the other work you know can be part of a different paper they don't all have to go in in the same study, right. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I think sometimes on the receiving end, if you haven't been involved in very many projects, um, if you're just reading scientific articles, you could think like, you know, that's probably what it looked like from the inception is this this whole beautiful story. But I think, um, yeah, in actuality, you like you're asking different questions and you don't know how things are going to work out or else you wouldn't do the experiments in the first place. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's really helpful. Um, and I think now it sounds like you're concluding your postdoc and moving on to the, the next step of being on the job market. Um, so what's it like being out there? How, how have you, you know, how did you, when did you decide to conclude things in your postdoc and decide that you were ready to be on it? And um, what has it been like, especially during COVID <laughs> um, and, and figuring out where to go next? Yeah, so uh I, you know, we heard that our paper was accepted in, you know, provisionally accepted in Nature Neuroscience in um, last year in, you know, September. So Mm -hmm. then I was like, okay, now is the time (laughs) to enter the job market. You know, this is Uh, (laughs) pre-COVID. I just had a paper accepted. I was working on another manuscript. So it was, you know, a busy time. Uh, It was difficult as it is, you know, to manage, you know, as I said, I have a six-year-old. Uh, my husband was traveling. So, um, you know, I mean, things worked out. I was sending in a lot of applications. I got interviews, you know, so um, things were moving along really well. And then came COVID, right? So this was <laughs> right in the middle of my interview. 
<laughs> yeah. So um, I think, I mean, I'm one of the lucky few ones, you know, I mean, I, you know, I have a job offer that I accepted. So I'm starting my lab. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So I, uh, yeah, I'm starting my lab at Stony Brook in January next year. Uh, so I'm extremely excited to, you know, uh, mm. be with, uh, you know, a community of terrific colleagues and have my own team. Um, yeah, but, you know, uh, in spite of this really favorable outcome during this whole interview process, you know, there were instances where uh, a job offer, you know, an offer got rescinded or uh, the, you know, there were hiring freezes announced for several of the universities I'd applied to. So it was really, right. yeah, really stressful time. Um, wow. Well, congratulations. That sounds like a great end result. <laughs> and yeah, it's a great institution and not too far away. Not too far away. Um, not too yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, just to add, and then came COVID would be a, a really amazing <laughs> book. <laughs> everyone's plans. You know, I was going to do this. I was finally going to travel and then came COVID. And then <laughs> came COVID. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, did you have the conversation uh, before going on the job market or like since um, attaining a position about how you're going to establish independence um, for maybe some of our listeners who uh, are earlier on in their careers? Mm -hmm. This is something that needs to happen um, when you establish independency from your uh, postdoc advisor, you need to show that you need, well, there's a reason that you need to have your own lab, that you're going to do your own studies. Um, yeah, so what was that conversation like? Right, so um, I think, you know, in my second year of postdoc itself, I had made it clear uh, with my postdoc mentor, you know, Eric Klan, uh, that I wanted to apply for, you know, academic positions uh, following my postdoc. So even back then I had, started conversations about, you know, what I could be working on. I mean, it was very clear from the start that I'll be working, you know, on memory and, you know, uh, some of the uh, cell type specific, you know, approaches, um, both in amygdala and beyond amygdala. Um, so having those conversations like way early were actually very helpful because I could start a side project in a way, you know, uh, that I have some preliminary data for, which Eric actually encouraged me to present during my talk talk uh, in all these places that I was interviewing. So that's oh, something cool. I can take with me, you know, that'll be my, um, you know, my research focus in my own lab. So I'm moving beyond amygdala, focusing on cortical structures, you know, more of the cortical amygdala pathways and more of about memory persistence, you know, so um, the, yeah, I think it's really important, I think, to, to choose your postdoc lab very carefully so that, you know, I mean, all these years of uh, effort, right? You don't want to be in a situation where you cannot take a mouse line or, you know, part of your project with you to your own lab. Because it is yes. really difficult as it is, you know, to set up a brand new lab from scratch and to not have any support, you know, or even some preliminary data, it, it gets really tough. Um, so I would say I've been really lucky in that regard. Uh, and I have also a lot of support from my post, from my PhD mentor. You know, there there have been a lot of mouse lines that I generated in my, uh, you know, in Rockefeller that I can now use. Uh, so it's really, you know, I'm trying to stay at the nexus of what I did during my PhD and what I uh, explored, you know, or investigated during my postdoc. So I think that sets my path 
you know, unique compared to both of my mentors. Yeah, definitely. That's a really smart way to, um, to show that, yeah, make yourself stand out and be different is, is combining with, with other prior experience that maybe um, you don't have in your postdoc. And it sounds like there's also like a lesson from your, from your career path so far of like, uh, kind of like maintaining these relationships um, mm-hmm. and, and, and combining them and, and, and the fact that, I mean, I guess that they had their own uh, conversation about it is, <laughs> uh, works out really nicely, but um, very cool that you were able to marry the two and, and bring it together. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Prairana, for your time and for joining us on today's episode of Top of the Noggin. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you both. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. We also strongly encourage our socially active listeners to follow the hashtag, hashtag Black and Neuro and hashtag Black and the Ivory to tune into the experience and follow the research of Black scientists. Please also follow us on Twitter at NogginNYU. And join us next week for a discussion with Sade Abiodin about her 2019 article discussing the inclusion and representation of marginalized identities in neuroscience.